we were the first ones to kind of experience that, right? And so we have the benefits of having what it used to be and what it is now and to leverage both sides to appeal to two types of audiences that really allows us to tap into and, and really exponentially grow and climb that ladder. I think that's the biggest benefit of being young and jumping into any industry right now is we have that. Welcome to Discover More Podcast, a community for seekers of curiosity and mental health insights. I am your host, Benoit Kim, a trilingual Korean-American veteran and former policymaker. I became a clinician after witnessing the non-negotiable of mental health and nuanced perspectives in our everyday life. I intend to connect and dissect the intricacies of mental health by talking to the most fascinating humans I can possibly find. Congratulations on choosing curiosity over complacency. Let's get this started. This week's guest is Jonathan Yu, aka the real estate mogul and Dodgers extraordinaire. Jonathan is a principal and chief operating officer at Convoy Home Loans, the 14th nationally ranked mortgage loan company in America. To put that into context, the company closed over $211 million in total volume within the first year of the business. The Disrupt magazine called them the new disruptors in the luxury real estate space. That said, what I respect about Jonathan the most is his unique ability to fight against the cutthroat and often zero-sum real estate culture by staying true to his Christian faith and being a successful human that his Korean-American family, church, and friends are proud of. Jonathan is a close friend of mine, one of the most successful people that I know, an expert in the world of real estate and mortgage loan, a deacon in training at her church. He also has a beautiful skin that glows lusciously despite his five hours of sleep every night. Jonathan, welcome to the show, man. Hey, thanks for having me on, dude. I love that, uh, love that intro, especially about my skin. I don't know if uh, I see the dark circles. It's pretty bad today. Yeah, but uh, for five hours, I think you're doing a good job with your skin. Oh, yeah, routine. for sure. For sure, for sure. So, as I said, your love for Dodgers shines through if for anyone that follows you on social media, right? So, I want to start off on a fun and chill note to get this started. So, between your love for Dodgers, your favorite baseball team, and real estate, if you had a choice to bring back the all-style team, like the Jackie Robinson, Fernandez, uh, Valenzuela, all those top all-star players of all time to back to the current roster, Versus having your company featured on a big real estate magazine, what would you pick? Ooh, hard choice, hard choice. To be honest, man, I mean that those people were great, but you know, I think the uh, it's always the regeneration of the new culture and new people that invigorate the game. That it's what makes the game fun. So I'm gonna always choose Convoy being done than anything else. We're actually gonna be on LA Weekly soon, so that's gonna be coming out. And by the way, you like my shirt, bro? Yeah, I did I this do. for you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I, I thought that question was an important question to start with because I view passionate people as a synonymous with obsessive people, right? I think passion and obsession are synonymous in a lot of senses. And your love for Dodgers or your love for real estate shines through for people who know you very deeply. So why real estate? Because for someone like you with your work ethics, with your vision, with your ability to follow through, you could have picked any field and succeeded it. But why do you believe in real estate so much? Because real estate is one of the few things, you know, on the planet that's considered an asset that you can see, right? And hold and touch um, like gold or watches even or anything like that. But real estate is something you can actually live in as well, right? It's one of the few things that people call home, people make home, 
You know, it's it's very unique in the sense where you actually have ownership of a piece of property that, you know, it's yours, it's to your name, which, you know, in itself, especially in a lot of other countries that don't allow that, it's a huge deal, right? Your name being tied to ownership. So, you know, I think that kind of uh, intrigued me at first. Um, and also coming out of college, because I graduated from UCSD um, with an econ and accounting degree, I thought, you know, hey, I wanted to go big for consulting or big for accounting. And um, I wanted to actually try sales before I jumped out of college. And I just fell into it. You know, it was the one job coming out of college that would pay me an hourly of $12.50 an hour and not take me on a draw and not try to deduct my money. So it was the one job that would offer that. So it kind of fell into it. So it became my passion after the fact, not prior to. So I see a huge similarity between my intro of $211 million of total volume versus your uh, graduating college GP of 2.6. They both start with twos. Uh, but I shared that besides a little shades to you. But uh, as a Korean American, Jonathan, you failed everything, right? You failed out of a pre-med as a major. You barely graduated from UCSD. Yet you're one of the most successful people that I know. But not just successful, you do it with integrity. What do you think that is? Well, I wouldn't say I barely graduated. C's get degrees for all you viewers, you know, uh, but it, it definitely wasn't the ideal sense. Uh, my parents weren't very happy. They, actually, I don't even think they know my GPA actually now that it's on YouTube. So they're going to know my GPA. But, <laughs> but until this point, they didn't know my GPA. You know, I never really gave them like uh, report cards or anything that kind of ended in high school. From an Asian sense, I guess I did fail. Huh? Now that you, you put that into kind of a perspective and I thank you for... Uh, for putting that into perspective for me, even though I didn't really need to hear that. I definitely, in the sense of an Asian culture, I did fail, but I don't know what really drove me to, to be in the position that I'm at. It definitely was just, you know, and, I, and there's always kind of the God's plan thing, right? The idea of it's all within God's plan. My belief is, hey, I'm, I'm never going to truly be able to understand what his plan is, what he wants for me, what's kind of out there for me until after it happens. Right, because hindsight's always twenty twenty. But during the moments where you're in it, it's extremely difficult to understand and know, like, uh, be aware of the surroundings that you're in. Right. So I think it's kind of that. I kind of just uh, gave up control for the most part, and I'm like, you know, you do what you will. But you know, the two hundred eleven. I mean, it seems like a big number, but you know, it's just a it's just a number. Myself and you know, with my partner um, Dustin, who's you know grown to be a very important part of my life now because obviously we're business partners and basically we're like, you know, married, you know, because of the business. And, you know, I think uh, it's just God just blessing me with good people in my lives. That's, you know, I, I truly believe God works through people. And despite the low GPA, despite failing as a nation, despite all that, I continue to stay focused on like, hey, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do. But I know that whatever I'm going to do, like you said, with my, you know, work ethic and all of that, I know that it's, it's going to work out. And I just kind of blindly went into it. And, you know, my dad always told me, he's like, hey, there's always going to be opportunity, one, but you have to be ready. Because if, if you're not ready, if you're not staying ready, if you're not staying focused, then you are not, if you see an opportunity pop up, you might not be able to take it. I think, you know, kind of failing as an Asian um on the numerical sense gpa wise really allowed me to push harder you know and and really just 
be something that can't be attained by just the normal course of action. Right? I didn't want to go the the paved path. I wanted to freaking you know pave my own way, grade my own mountain, and you know start building a house there. And that's what I wanted. Yeah. So I sense uh, two threads throughout your response. Right. It's first is walk by faith, not by sight. And we'll definitely talk about church. We'll talk about the pillar of your faith in your life uh, later in the episode for sure. Another quote I uh, reminds me of is success equals to opportunity plus preparation. Right? When opportunity presents itself to you through serendipity, through encounters, or through networking, if you're not prepared to rise up to the opportunity, it's obsolete. It's literally meaningless. And I sense what you said, but that's why work ethics and your dedications and perseverance, all that cliche stuff is has to be the part of the equation. Uh, I want to go into the train of Dustin and your current partnership with him. So from my research and a lot of your media appearances you've been on lately, what puts Convoy Home Loans apart from everyone else, like the so-called competitive advantage, is that you and Dustin actually put your skins in the game, right? You have your true equities, you're truly at stake. So it's not just for profit. It's actually not mission, but survival based. You have to succeed because your skin's in the game. So in addition to just the white glove, A1 customer service, the royalty-like uh, treatment that you provide for your investors and your customers, all that aside, what truly makes you as the co-founder of your company and what makes Convoy so special in this very saturated real estate world? To be honest, I think it, it has to be that white glove service. And the reason why I say that is because Half of sales is just making sure the customer is heard, making sure they feel like, you know, they're being taken care of. That's the most important part, right? That's why when you go to a restaurant and a hundred dollar plate of fine dining where you have like this big of a muscle, a little bit of whatever sauce on the side, you look at that and you're like, oh shoot, like it's a hundred bucks, but oh my God, it tastes so good. Why does it taste so good? It's not good because it's like a little muscle on here. It's good because the ambiance of the service you're getting right from the restaurant, everyone that has Michelin stars and all that, they have great service, right? And that makes people want to come back, pay the higher prices, do all that. So I think truly, that's kind of something that's lacking in the mortgage industry, because it is kind of an older industry, where you have to do a lot of business face to face, but I do like we do most of our business on the phone. So it like allows the client to feel like a little more personable, you know, relationship wise, and then also just like being able to make sure that they feel like they are heard and not being ignored. Because a lot of loan officers or other people in the loan industry will be like, I'll just answer them later, I'll just answer them later, right. And despite having 200 loans in our, you know, in our pipe, and, you know, a million text messages a day, you know, we try to make sure, hey, 24 hours, we'll get back to you within 24 hours, and, you know, type it out, chat it out, and make sure that they understand all the clients know, like, look, you know, you're, you're important to us, right? And I think that feeling of driving, yes, it's skin in the game, but also just like, we truly believe like, look, it is for the client. It's an important thing for the client because real estate, like if you talk about a house, like for most people that don't have millions and millions and millions of dollars in the bank in like the stock market or something, it is the most important asset in their entire lives. And if I am not treating it as if it was my most important asset, then why the hell am I even in the business? Because this is a service industry. It's not a, oh, I'm here to you know take profit. It's no, I want to make sure that you get what you want, right? And I think that really sets it apart. Two, 
is being able to creatively put solutions together, not putting everyone inside of, let's say, a box, because I n- I was never in a box. I never I never went the conventional route. Like again, referencing earlier, the failed Asian, right? I never went up that way. So why should I put other clients and other people in the same boat of like, you know, you have to fit in these guidelines or else you do not work, right? Um, so kind of doing that, and that's obviously helped us a lot in terms of being able to set ourselves apart on, you know, for luxury clients, for investors, because these are kind of like the underserved communities. And we that's where we kind of like dove in and we're like, hey, we got to focus on these types of products, these types of properties so that we can make it so that, hey, you don't actually have to fit between these lines. I can get you something up here. I can get you something down here, you know, and make them feel like, hey, I am getting personalized service for what I'm looking to do. And to us, that's very important. So I watched your interview with one rent at a time, right? Pretty popular real estate YouTube channel. And Mike, the host, he has what, 20 plus years of experience in financial independence, real estate. And he literally laughed out loud in the interview because out of sheer shock value with when you talked about your ability to create this package of 4% fixed interest rate for 40 years for a duplex or something for non real estate expert people, because Mike's an expert and he was shocked. And just he was laughing because he didn't know what else to do. Can you explain that in layman terms, why that is so impressive? And what does that mean? Let me preface it by saying rates no longer that video was like back in I think January or February. So for your viewers, rates have gone up since then. And by rates, I mean, both the federal funds rate and mortgage rates, but we're talking about mortgages. So to put it into layman's terms, the reason why it was kind of a breakthrough product is because it's a 40-year fixed loan. So a lot of loans that everyone knows and loves right now and you know purchase everything, 30-year fixed, 30-year fixed, 30-year fixed, right? Everyone knows that. They even know, okay, if I'm in a 30-year fixed, this is the normal conventional loan. If I go 15-year, I know my rate's going to be lower, but my payment's going to be higher, but I'm going to pay it off faster. My perspective is you know, real estate debt, and I may get a lot of hate for this, but I think real estate debt is good. I think it's good. The government literally incentivizes you to take a loan on your property. So what I, you know, what we kind of brought to the table was this is a 40-year fixed loan. So this is not a 30-year fixed, your traditional, this is 40. So yes, it's a longer period of time. You're going to be paying a little more interest, maybe a lot more interest. However, it's 40 years, so your payment is way lower, right? So who cares? You, if, if, especially if it's an investment property and you get to write it off, it's just another write-off. Dustin's better at statistics than I am, but like 80 something percent you know, of people will refinance their house within five to seven years because of something that happens in the real estate market, whether rates come back down from where they are right now, or they want to cash out, pull out some money. So a 40 year fix is like, dude, no one's going to stay the entire 40 years and maintain that loan for entire 40 years. So while rates are high, you might as well take the lowest payment possible, which you get by stretching out the loan. So I want to zoom in on something you mentioned that you might get some hate for it by saying that you think real estate loan is good. Can you contextualize a little bit further and explain what you mean by that? Yeah, because there's there's a lot of like gurus out there. Um, And I put gurus in air quotes because some people are real, some people are fake, right? Some people are just there to sell you a course. But for 
some people like Dave Ramsey, who's a very big like financial like, hey, debt is bad is his mindset, right? If you if you watch any of his videos, or if you listen to them, it's always debt is bad, you got to pay everything off, buy your cars in cash, buy this, do this, you know, do that. And it's like, there's a lot of people that follow that mindset of like, oh, shoot, debt is bad, right? But the reason I say it's good, and you know, why we get a lot of hate for it is, if you look at every wealthy person, and I mean, truly wealthy person in America, they have debt, they have millions and millions of millions of dollars of debt, they live off the debt. That's how they're not, I mean, they don't pay taxes as much as, you know, maybe someone else, like truly wealthy people, because they live off their debt. That's where the hate kind of comes in. It's like, oh, dude, first, debt is bad. And two, the ultra, ultra wealthy are using debt to leveraging debt to not pay taxes and continue to, you know, live their lives. And, you know, to be honest, I think if, dude, if I can get there, if you can get there, why not? Don't hate the player, hate the game, right? That's the saying. I think it's exactly that. And and that's why a lot of people that can never attain it or will never get there or just don't understand how debt works because all they hear is like, especially in the Asian culture, you know, we have a very like, Asians are like, oh, we got to pay it off, right? So if you go to like Arcadia, right? I don't have a lot of clients in Arcadia. Why do I not have a lot of clients in Arcadia? A lot of the homes are paid off or they buy it in cash and they never move. They come from a background of like, oh shoot, like, Debt is like, it's not good. Any debt is not good, right? But I think you're leaving as an American, we're leaving a lot on the table if we don't utilize like debt. Don't take out credit card debt. Don't take out personal loans, you know, debt. I'm not talking about that type. I'm strictly talking about mortgages, which is a home loan, which is tied to your house, which is tied to your name, your ownership, right? That's all I'm talking about. No other debt, that debt only. Of course, we're not financial advisors. We don't give out any financial advices. So don't sue us after the fact. And also more importantly, like nuance is important. Jonathan's not saying that all debts are bad or all debts are good. It's just that if you're strategic enough and if you know how to leverage your debt, then there is an opportunity and possibility to create a large amount of wealth from the so-called bad debt mindset. So I just want to add that sign though. So speaking of mortgage loans and strategic and beneficial debt that we're talking about your specialty is in originating creative loans any success stories that you can think about from your recent work with your clients and it really served the clients because that comes first but also really benefited your company as a whole you don't have a lot of um you know money talk people that talk like numbers wise on your channel so i feel like again whenever it comes to money it's easy to hate on people that have money but me being on the receiving end of like, hey, I'm seeing the whole picture. Dude, I think it's great. A big buyer of these types of loans that I'm doing is Goldman Sachs. And Goldman Sachs, they're a bank, right? So they're a big bank. And I know, you know, Chase buys some. I know Wells Fargo dabbles in it. I know, you know, there's a lot of different banks that dabble in these loans and they buy it as an asset class because as a debt package, they buy it because it performs well. These people actually pay their mortgage better than like even people that have like stable jobs w2 whatever dude if someone's w2 if you're not like self-employed and this is not to bag on anyone that's w2 but if you are w2 you are seen as more stable by conventional means but in reality everyone knows that's not true because if you're w2 you could be fired tomorrow 
And if you're fired tomorrow, you have no source of income, right? So the government sees it as more stable, but in reality, we know it's not that stable. And we are entering into a, a market now. I've already seen it on the mortgage side because I've had a lot of colleagues and people get laid off of um, you know, other mortgage companies they've been working at, the staff being cut in half, like other brokers shutting doors. You know, this that's happening right now in our field. And I feel like Mike, the host for One Rental at a Time, says it best, but he's the one like, look, the world needs to pay attention to the lending side first before they pay attention to anything else that comes after. Because everything that it's kind of like a wave. But the first people that always get hit when something's about to happen is the lending side. Money gets tighter, right? And if money gets tighter and there's more regulation or whatever, and that gets tightened up, then later on, everything else comes because of this. If we're talking about like our current financial situation, right? Inflationary data came out yesterday, 8.6%. And that data is last month's data. They always trail a month behind. So reacting, the, the market reacts to that last month's data. And yesterday, the mortgage market rates jumped. It was just absolute shit. And the reason it was absolute shit is because they're reacting to that one month behind data. But lending is tightening up, right? Rates are higher. Mortgage rates are higher. So if mortgage rates are higher, and now you have this wave, you're going to start seeing of like companies cannot borrow more debt. There is a lot of people, a lot of companies that are built on debt. They've never turned a profit. They're literally built on debt. What happens when you take that debt away? and their ability to create that debt? What happens to all the people they employ? That becomes a scary thought. Because if money, if the federal funds rate continues to go up, which is, you know, for your listeners, to put it as simply as possible, it's overnight bank to bank lending, which means that if it gets more expensive for banks to like, if you charge a credit card, and then the bank has to pay that money, right for you, and they it gets more expensive to do that, then your credit card rates are going to go up, right. But also, personal loans, bank loans, whatever, they're all going to go up because it's now more expensive to lend you that money. And if a company, if you know, if you work for a company that you know is built on debt and that debt becomes too expensive to where the company can no longer borrow any more money, what comes next? Layoffs come first. They're always going to cut the people first. So they cut the people. They cut, you know, they cut spending. You start seeing your snacks cut. No more free lunches. You know, all these things kind of start waving in because what was built on debt is no longer built on debt. People are going to start having to take cuts on salary. Think about what happened when COVID first started, right? When COVID first started, the rates shot up, everything shot up for a hot sec because everyone was afraid, right? During that time, and even now, I mean, you know, look at like Meta, Facebook, they haven't had great numbers and people, employees, engineers, like people that work at Meta and Facebook are like, Dude, we're getting our benefits cut. We're starting to lose benefits. Facebook is a bad example because they have a lot of money, but like, you know, companies like Uber, who've actually never turned a profit, what's going to happen to them? You know, how are they going to continue to pay their people and pay their staff and do all that if they can no longer borrow money because it's too expensive? They're going to cut people. I know payroll is the most expensive thing on our books. So the first thing you can cut is payroll. 
I'm, I mean, I foresee it getting tighter and tighter as we enter towards like more recessionary periods, which I think is coming. Not in real estate. I think I personally think real estate is going to stay, you know, stronger of the of the other classes, but everything else, I feel like it's going to get hit pretty hard um, coming into 2023. Yeah. So I want to zoom in on a really important topic you talked about, Jonathan. It's wealth in America, right? Mm -hmm. Because I've always been fascinated by this immense immeasurable gap between the wealth or the wealthy and the working class or even upper middle class that gap is of course is ever expanding right but like how can one person go from making let's say you make a 400k a year right you work as a very doctor lawyers a partner at a firm but then it's pretty impossible for them to ever accumulate 50 million dollars of wealth or 100 million dollars of wealth that gap doesn't really close over the years doesn't matter how competent they are and i think what you said portrays the reality that the true wealth and the true wealthy people they have access or insider information that a lot of normal public does not have and you sort of talked about the few intricacies but could you uh for us the listeners can you maybe to your own way take this however you want maybe portray a picture of some of the uh, generational or wealth landscape you've seen from your work because you deal with the true wealth of the wealth well, a lot of the like really, really wealthy people, um, it's more generational, right? And that's why like there's a big movement. There was a big movement of like, hey, we got to hustle, grind, create that generational wealth, right? Generational wealth is what they're calling it in our age right now. But they truly have generational wealth that's kind of flowed down from their grandparents, parents. To be honest, to get to that point, really hard unless you just have a breakthrough and you can be the one to like set up the investments to be able to do that for your generations you know your family generations to come but will will i be able to enjoy i don't know a hundred million dollars right now probably not you know even if i even if i make like 10 million a year right that's a lot of money right but even if i'm making 10 million a year I'm never going to be able to enjoy a hundred million dollars sitting in the account because if it's 10 million that I'm making half in taxes, you know, take this, take that, take my expense. You're never going to be able to reach that point where you have that amount just sitting there. Right. And a lot of these like really, really, truly wealthy people have the money just sitting there. They don't have to work for it. Um, what I really admire though, is the truly wealthy people that have really wealthy backgrounds that really try to build something, right? That don't like squander their money. They don't go, you know, driving around Lamborghinis everywhere. But the people that are truly, really like taking what they were given and then utilizing that to expand and build further, those people, I mean, you know, you can hate on them all you want. Like, oh, you had a silver spoon, you were born with it. Yeah, they were, but there's nothing wrong with it. They didn't get a choice in that, right? So, there's, they, you know, they don't deserve the hate. But also, I mean, they honestly, like the people that are really, truly working, like I think some of them work harder than I do. And I work pretty hard. You know, that's what I really admire in terms of like the, the gap. But people that are squandering it away, I mean, I think there's better things you can do with a lot of money. You know, you can help more people. And I should clarify, I really think money is um, a tool. It's a vehicle. It's not the end all be all, right? 
when I first started talking about why I was like, oh, yeah, I gotta, I, I want to make, I want to make X amount of dollars. I want to do this. And as I'm getting closer and closer and really seeing other things unfold, I'm less and less like, it's not really about that. It's more about what can I do with the money, right? What does it allow me to do? And I think that's kind of the gap that I wish I had when I was starting up. And I wish I had some type of guidance in the sense of like, hey, here's kind of the blueprint. Um, and here's some starting capital for you to to start somewhere, right? Because I started from zero. But the people with generational wealth that are actually doing something like they have that leg up because they have that that injection of capital, they have the little bit of the blueprint, right? Their parents used to probably are running a family business that has been successful for years and years, generations, then Dude, you're you're just continuing to build that out, you know. So those are the people that are like should not receive any hate, but that gap is extremely large to the point where not even me working a hundred hours a day can get to someone that is truly, truly wealthy that has gone that. Unless you're like a, a tech unicorn and you sell your company for like, you know, a hundred million, then for sure you got there. But in order to get to that, you've probably worked 10 people's lifetimes to get to the point where you're like selling something like that. Right. And have other people see your value. So I think that's it. But even the people that make like a hundred million or whatever, and like one thing they're not, I mean, it's not generational. It's not like, I don't even think they're like truly, truly wealthy because that hundred million, Oh, you're getting taxed on it. You know, capital gains, whammy, boom, hits you. Right. There is that disparity. I think it's, it's going to be very hard to gap, but you know, it doesn't take away from the fact that, hey, maybe you can you can be the one. Maybe I can be the one that starts that generational wealth. And that's kind of, I think, the movement that's happening right now that I really enjoy is watching people succeed to get to a point where they can actually pass that on and continue to grow that with their families, right? But that gap these days, nah, forget about it. It's not just a gap. It's like a just a chasm, just like a cliff. The It's a different planet, universe. If I make $10 million a year as a clinician, there's something seriously foul about that. So I literally cannot wrong. ever, yeah. yeah, there's something wrong with my business model, <laughs> uh, how I extract, so I should never get there, create a cult or something. So I hear this quote and comment a lot on YouTube space, like, oh, I'd rather cry in my Ferrari than drive a Toyota Camry. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard because like psychologically, if you drive a Ferrari and you're crying in your car, there are seriously things wrong in your life, like serious issues that your family's falling apart. So like people can just like don't hate, like rich people have their own issues and pain is always maximum. The suffering is always maximum to the people experiencing it. And that's a fact. So uh, I don't understand all the hate on the people. And of course, there's a lot of unethical things that people are prone to. But as you said, money's not, not just a tool, it's an amplifier. It amplifies the core of your being and who you are. Like you, you're a generous person, you have integrity, you're a good Christian. So the more wealth you accumulate, the more impact you can trickle down onto the society, to the Korean American community. But if you're already selfish when you're broke, you're going to be even more selfish when you're rich. And that's also a fact. Let's go down to the immigration and in terms of you come from nothing real quick, since you t brought that up. I know that we both are the seeds of our parental sacrifice right? Me as a byproduct of a single mother, right? We had a very tough upbringing as well, but you as well, like your family's literally had nothing. You're literally from nothing. You're the archetypical immigration come up story, so to speak. Um, so viewing your parents' sacrifice, right? You never saw them at home because they're always working multiple jobs. 
you had a lot of resentment towards them because they couldn't attend your sports events or your trophy events because they had to put the meals onto your table. Whereas now you're working 90 hours a week, even to this podcast with you, put your phone on the airplane mode for two, three hours. Uh, that's unheard of, right? Because you don't even put it on airplane mode on the airplane, as we said yeah. right before we hopped yeah. in the mic. What does sacrifice mean to you and how do you view it now? I think sacrifice comes with the understanding of a bigger purpose, something that's bigger than you. You know, the definition of sacrifice is giving up something, you know, with reason, right? You're giving up one thing to allow for another thing to happen, right? That's sacrifice. You're choosing between one of two things or one of many things. Growing up, obviously, I never really understood it because my parents had a factory um, in downtown and I know they worked like insane hours, you know? They worked so hard. And um, for me as a kid, I was like, why don't you guys ever, you guys can never come to my, you know, and you're, you're a kid, you know, you're a kid. Uh, you're like, oh, why can't you ever come to my like events? And why can't you come to my ceremonies? And I was like, oh, I'm getting teary, uh, teary talking about it. And it's just their response every time was, look, it's what they had to do. It's what they had to do. <laughs> they didn't really have a choice. They didn't choose that. <laughs> if every family could choose to be like wealthy, they choose it. Why wouldn't you? You know, that was their, sh their way of showing love. Especially first childs. I think we get it the hardest. We're the, we're the hamster children, right? We get the experimentation happening on us. That kind of allows us to understand a little deeper as we get older. Me working now, like you said, 80, 90, 100 hours a week. It helps me understand like, dude, how hard must it have been for them? You know, because I know I do better now than, I, than they did back then. I'm like, dude, how did they raise like two kids, have a family, grandparents, all of that. How do they do all that with like half? So now I want to buy them the world, but they gave up time with family for allowing us to survive. I'm not mad at it. I'm crying about it, you know? So um, I think uh, that goes a long way. And it's something that I truly hope to understand, but also never understand someday. That's why I'm working so hard now. Right. So I don't have to sacrifice that time with my kids, with my family to do something to, to have to have to work. Right. So even if for my for my future wife, I wanted to only work if she's passionate about it. That's the only reason why I wanted her to work. I don't want her to have to work because she has to work and has to bring something to the table. I'm going to have more than enough. Forget all that. I want her to work because she's passionate about it. Right. And I think that's also a sacrifice as well. I'm sacrificing a lot right now, but later, you know, I want to, it's for, because I grew up with in a situation where I'm like, shoot, I didn't have my parents to take me around and do all these things like other kids did. I want to do all that. We are the seeds of our parental sacrifice. And unless you're an immigrant, people like the AAPIs or Korean Americans like we are, it's an experience you will never understand. And as you said, I've grew up with so much resentment when my single mom, she couldn't be there. I was raised by a nanny a lot of times in China because she just, I didn't see her for years on end. And, but I wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be here without what they've done. That's why I think it's not just our obligations to do what we love, but we owe it to our parents to live out the visions that we have. Otherwise, what did they sacrifice it for, right? So speaking of family, Jonathan, 
you are the oldest of three. As you said, we're the first child. We are the Frankenstein of our families. We're the experiments, all these things to us to see what sticks. Most things didn't stick with me. I got a, a lot of beating to correct my course, which was much needed, right? You as an older brother, and now you as the employer of uh, many, many employees on your team, right? As a COO, as a principal at Convoy Home Loans. What does brotherhood mean to you? In addition to that, what does being a mentor mean to you? Because it's all about leadership. As an older brother, as a mentor, it's just setting a good example. Because you know you're being watched. You're not being watched by, it's not you being watched by your parents, you being watched by someone else, it doesn't matter. You are the direct person that the person that was born after you is looking up to. Because you have a year, two years, whatever, how many, how many of your years, right, ahead of that person, you are being directly looked up to as a role model, regardless of whether you like it or not. Sometimes it ends up that the younger brother ends up being, you know, way more successful than the older brother. And that's totally fine. Happens. Sometimes it ends up none of them get successful. Sometimes it ends up older brothers more successful than younger brother. But, but because you're always being watched as an example, you want to be the best kind of person possible. And I think it means understanding and accepting that, hey, if someone, like if your younger brother or a mentee, right, that you're mentoring becomes more successful than you, you want that because it means that you've set a good example. You were a big part in them becoming that. Dude, that's a huge win as a mentor, older brother, whatever. Like, that's a huge win for you. That's a huge testament to you. That's why our parents now, like, when they go out and they're talking to their friends or, you know, the, especially like Asian parents, older parents, they love to like talk about their their children, right? And the reason why they talk about their children is because, dude, you are their face. You either are putting light to their face or you are spitting on it. There's no like really in between. They gave you the opportunity to grow. I'm, and some families, very different, right? There's a lot of families that didn't happen this way. There's a lot of kids that went through a lot of like, you know, mental health issues and whatever trauma, like besides all that, I'm not talking about any of that. And I think, you know, that's what it is. If you have a good mentor, if you have a good older brother, you have a good example, then you should be more successful. I think that's what being a good mentor slash brother means. It's just literally being able to affect and impact someone's life, be that example, pave the way a little bit almost. In Korean, there's a term called peapo, right? You know what I'm talking about? It means my stomach hurts, right? In literal translation. From and jealousy. Yeah, it's from jealousy, right? And it's to not feel that kind of jealousy, that human um, aspect that you were talking about emotionally, um, to not feel that when someone else is succeeding. I think that's what like true brotherhood is. You succeed and you, you celebrate with them, not against them. Whenever I didn't get an A in an exam, my mom's like, <laughs> what that means is you, you, you wiped shit all over my face. I was like, mom, that's a little bit extreme, don't you think? It's just, just an exam. I got A before <laughs> this, like shit on your face. Like what? But uh, I think uh, the intention is that they pour so much heart and sacrifice to groom, like, groom us into this perfect children of them. That's why it's such a high stake to them. Just like convoy home loans for you and Dustin. You put so much skins and your sacrifice into the game that it is your baby, quite truly. That's why I think you guys are very successful. It's not just a company or a business venture. It is the representations of your values, your work ethics, 
your sacrifice and of course Dustin's leadership as well. I feel like we're just getting started though. You know, I don't I don't even feel like we've reached a pinnacle or anything. I feel like we I always come in feeling like crap, like we are at the bottom. We gotta we gotta come back up. We gotta do something different. We gotta we gotta keep grinding. And I'm and I'm always over the mindset. Dustin's the same way. You know, we chat we text about it all night. It's like we gotta do more of this. We gotta do more of that. And it's always just like challenging each other to like constantly peak up and not feel like we're comfortable because that's the that's the killer of success comfort it's killer there's nothing that kills success more than, besides death nothing that kills success more than being comfortable right so i feel like we're just getting started and it's already been a year and a half ish but i feel like I, I still feel like a rookie what do you think that comes from that this endless drive to keep uh, thriving forward Again, I think it goes back to the sacrifices my parents made. I feel like I'm doing them an injustice if I don't maximize on the opportunity I was given. Honestly, there's a lot of things I want to do. I mean, with money, not saying I'm again, not money centric, but money as a tool, right? There's a lot of things that I want to do. You know, I get more calls now from different people, you know, but uh, more than that, it's just it allows me to, you know, kind of help without wanting to receive anything back or. When we're talking about give out of the goodness of your heart, right? It allows me to do that without the worry because they talk about give out of the goodness of your heart, but they don't talk about the, but you have to sacrifice other things in your life. And, it, and then internally, it makes you feel like crap. You know, it makes you feel like crap. That extra money that I gave out of the goodness of my heart is now a freaking poison that's living in my heart, right? Especially if you're tight on money. and no, I don't want that. You know, so I think that's, that's a big driver in terms of, uh, you know, why I constantly grind and I'm hungry. And I, I always feel like I am not succeeding. You, I, it feels really, really weird. Always you coming out of your mouth. You're always hyping me up. You're like, oh, dude, he's one of the most successful people I know. I'm like, oh, dude, am I, am I really successful? You know what, what, what I don't, I don't feel like I am, you know, I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm still just getting started, you know? I feel like I haven't hit that. And I feel like the word success, like, oh, you are successful means that, oh, like in a way, like, hey, you've made it. And I'm like, oh, dude, I don't really feel like I made it. Not like in the viewpoints of everybody else, right? They can see me as like, oh, you know, he's succeeding, he's doing this. But in my own heart, I feel a little weird. And you always say, oh, you suck at, you know, receiving compliments and all of that. Like, it's true. Like, I don't feel it. I don't even think it. You know, it's it's kind of like that. Yeah. I mean, there's, of course, still areas of growth. And I, of course, we have to contextualize what success means, right? Like when I say success, money is not a part of it. Likewise, I say this in the least self-centric. I'm one of the most successful people I know. Like I'm happy. I'm grateful. I'm doing what I absolutely love. I love my clinical practice. I love this podcasting. I have an amazing girlfriend and my parents are healthy. I'm a great older brother to my sister. I went through deployment as a veteran. So I, I generally say this, I am one of the most successful people I know, period. I'm doing everything I want to do. And likewise, it's how I view you, right? In terms of, that's why I preface it by saying you're one of the most successful people with integrity, because integrity to me is huge. We wouldn't be here. You wouldn't be my closer friends if you're just wealthy and trillion dollar total volume closing. That doesn't mean anything to me. I want to zoom in something and highlight something that's really important is that you feel like this endless need to keep driving forward is because of your parents' sacrifice. 
I want to make sure we preface that because we're not saying that Jonathan is doing this for his parents. He's saying that his parents, his sacrifice allowed him to do what he does, but he loves real estate. He loves making money. He loves using money as a tool to power people. Like he, like Jonathan is deeply passionate about real estate and his current profession. But can you talk more about the different balance and nuances between maybe climbing up the ladder for the sake of parents' expectations versus doing something that you believe in wholeheartedly? Well, my parents weren't proud of me when I first took the job. You know, at twelve fifty an hour, I graduated from UCSD. I was doing big four accounting, accounting and consulting interviews, like stuff like that. You know, they would they wanted me to go there. They would have been proud of me going there. And even that would have been a disappointment because I started as pre-med and I was going to be a doctor, <laughs> right? So it, it was never really their path, like what they wanted. And, you know, I remember when I first took my job um, at $12.50 an hour. I remember that so vividly because it's like, it feels like I just, I'm still there. And at the time, like it was going against the entire grain of everything because my family's not like a, you know, they don't, they're, they're not a big real estate investor or like, you know, have a bunch of experience in real estate. I was venturing into something that was like, shoot, like, you know, if you really suck and you want to know you suck, try sales, right? <laughs> no, seriously. If you're like, cause sales will put you on your ass a million times a day. I was like, shoot, if, if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna graduate and I did. The, I don't know where it came. Sometimes I think back, and I'm sure you too. You think back to things you've done and like decisions you've made in the past. You're like, dude, where was like what? What was I even thinking to make that decision? You know. But this is one of those decisions because I was interviewing for you know whatever, and they were gonna. And my parents were like, oh, you need to, you should do that. That's gonna be a great opportunity, whatever. And I was like, you know what? Screw all that. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to do something that no one in our family has ever done. And I'm gonna go into the real estate industry, but not just the real estate industry. I'm going to go into the mortgage industry, which is the loans that back the real estate. And I'm going to go there. But not only that, I'm going to do it for like minimum, minimum wage. And my mom was like, she was upset. She was very upset. You know, they were not, they were not the proudest of me. I wasn't working at a big company with like a brand name. If I started at like Wells Fargo or Chase, they would have been like, oh, Wells Fargo, Chase, like whatever. They were not pleased. When all the other kids that, you know, were my age, they were going into like, oh, Deloitte, KPMG. Oh, my son's going to med school. You know, like all these different things. And, you know, they were like, oh, yeah, my son's, uh, you know, (laughs) in the loan business somewhere. They had to learn how to trust me in that sense. And then I jumped to that field. And then obviously climbing up the ladder, it's all about, in this game right now, and this is for your viewers as well, like being young is an advantage. Being young is an advantage. And I say that because I'm in the loan industry where a lot of people are older, right? The number one broker in LA for mortgages is Mark Cohen. He's, he's older. He's been killing it for years and years and years and years, right? But hey, here comes uh, Dustin and Jonathan and Convoy, you know? And like, we're young, but we're hungry. And boom, oh, we're on the map. Oh, we're continuously, you know, coming up on the map because we have that energy and that drive and the ability to like market, right, separately. That really sets us apart. And now age isn't a factor because so many young people are doing such great things. And that was something that I had difficulty overcoming when I first started because 
when I first started, it was a lot of my clients are double my age. Two, you know, a lot of the people that I ended up after I climbed the ladder a little bit and ended up uh, managing 10 years older than me, right? And they were listed and I was telling them what to do. But what allowed me to get there is like really just being able to have that extra, that extra spark, right? That X factor of like being able to push, 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 push and really learn and obtain and retain information. Um, and I think that's the advantage of being young. We have the ability to process information so much faster than any other generation before us, right? Because our year, I'm 28, you're 28, right? 29, right? We're in the same age gap range. We are the last generation of people that transition from the old phase to the new phase. Because we started, we like kind of, we're starting to feel Instagram, Facebook, whenever it's coming out, MySpace, social media, right? We were the first ones to kind of experience that. Right. And so we have the benefits of having what it used to be and what it is now and to leverage both sides to appeal to two types of audiences that really allows us to tap into and, and really exponentially grow and climb that ladder. I think that's the biggest benefit of being young and jumping into any industry right now is we have that. We have that. You may not have gone through a recessionary cycle yet. God, I don't even remember the recessionary cycle back in 2007, 2008, 2009. I don't, I don't remember. He, ben was just shaking his head. He doesn't remember either, right? That was not real to us, but we're about to hit one. We're about to hit one. So we will experience it. If you think about it in some sense, some way, the past two years of COVID have been exactly that as well. It's not a recession, but it's like a recession in our own personal lives. And a lot of people that went through COVID, you either came out of COVID freaking swinging, like you, you came out 10 years in experience within the two years packed together and you, you're, you're swimming or you use COVID as kind of not an excuse, but a reason and things may have happened. Again, I talk very uh, bluntly, but I do, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not an asshole. I just very passionate about this, you know, drive thing. Um, or you kind of COVID kind of slowed you down. You know, you either got sped up or you got slowed down. You know, there's people that joke about, Oh, I, you know, I, we lost COVID years don't count. You know, I lost two years during COVID, right? I feel like I gained 10. I didn't lose two years. I feel like I gained 10. If COVID didn't happen, I feel like obviously it was a global pandemic, all of that, but I feel like I wouldn't have been able to do what I'm doing now in the same time span, just because that allowed that, that period of like, everyone's on pause allowed me to just be like, boom, done. I'm not going to stay on pause. I'm going to keep going. You know, and a lot of people were of the same mind. You know, that's why we see so many people that are like, you know, succeeding right now that started during COVID. Yeah, you make, uh, dude, I talk a lot, dude. Yeah, I mean, Jonathan is very emotional. He's very sensible as a human. He's just very passionate. But of course, like there are dire and really tragic life circumstances that force to put people on pause because the COVID was called the great pause. But we're talking about like, if you're listening to this podcast now, you're probably privileged enough you have a certain level of securities resources that understand what he's saying. And like my personally speaking, I almost lost my mom. I almost lost my uncle and my grandmother to COVID and other health life implications. Like I'm talking about near death experience. And, but I also went through my greatest career pivots at age 28. I left my policy job as a policymaker when I was the youngest program manager in my agency history. I chose clinical route. So Jonathan included, he started this company by leaving his uh, high executive role where he led 95 mortgage loan officers at his previous company. Because a lot of times we don't know what we're capable of. 
we don't understand our own capacity until life calls it, until the necessity and this necessitates for us to come up to the occasions or not. Um, but there's a lot of nuances there too. Yeah. So please don't take any offense. I'm, you know, I am a very sensible person. I'm not trying to offend anybody, yeah, you know, for sure. but I'm just being, you know, just spitting my opinion, my viewpoint out there. So I want to go into the energy expenditure real quick, because I think that's a really important topic. Because a lot of times in current America society, capitalism, a lot of times people talk about time allocations or uh, money or resource allocations. I think a topic that's not really talked about is energy expenditures, how you allocate your energy, right? And so I want to just highlight that people because being young is a huge X factor. If you have the intention, if you have this decisive ability to not get caught up in the paralysis by analysis, actually do something about it. Because dreamers are not the same thing as doers. There's a huge difference, right? Um, so on that note, I want to go back and visit your previous high executive role, right? Where you led 95 mortgage loan officers. And this is a leadership question. So take this how you will. Because the special power, the superpower that I think really puts you or Convoy Homelands apart is you and Dustin's leadership. And you guys, like you are the X factor. It's not the company. Company just representations of who you are because you know how to talk to people because you understand about emotions. You understand about passion. So what has that your high executive role of leading 95 um, officers taught you about leadership and how do you continue to carry that forward to your current position as a COO and as the highest leader, one of the highest leaders in your current company? I think it's just... Being able to understand that everyone's different. I think that's the main core thing. No two people are the same. You might be able to try to put them in the same bucket, try to relate them into the same way. And I've, I've tried it before, right? Leading a lot of people and putting them in buckets instead of like individualize. Uh, but at a certain point, you need to realize that every person is different. Every two people, even though they seem the same, they're different. So you have to be able to address people in a way where it's different. Now, I still suck at it. And I know it's true because sometimes I am a little colder when it comes to like business and like decision making and stuff. I'm a little colder than I should be to people because I'm like, I'm, I'm result oriented. I got to get the result, right? So sometimes I am colder or sometimes that coldness is maybe at that point in time, something that the person needed to hear. You can't always be like, it's all okay. Like everything's going to be okay. It can't always be like that. Sometimes, especially if you're leading people, you have to tell them, hey, you suck, you know, but you can't just say, hey, you suck. What are you doing? I think what sets it apart is, hey, you suck, but here's how we can improve, right? It's just giving them the steps to being able to like, take movements forward of like, hey, what are the next steps? What do I have to do in order to get to wherever you're at or wherever I want to be, right? How can I suck less, right? Giving them the manual for don't suck 101, you know? And like, and like showing them how to get about that is like, I think the next step of like, hey, you really show you care as an individual. And I think that's what sets you apart as a leader than you know, something, anything else. Also leading from the front. I'm not, I'm not a passive leader. I'm not going to tell my people to do something that I've never done before myself. I'm not going to tell my people to like do loans or talk to clients or do a certain thing, anything that I would not have done myself or already have done myself. 
Yeah, just to uh, provide some more context, the type of leader that Jonathan is, out of the however many team members or subordinates or people that Jonathan led at his previous company, a lot of them were able to willingly come to his current company because they really, really learned a lot from Jonathan's mentorship. And Jonathan truly leads by example. Those people that currently work for me, I mean, I didn't have to reach out at all. In fact, it was them being like, I want to work for you. And I still have people hitting me up every single day. You know, the people that have like kind of come to work for me, they are, they truly just like, they applied. They were like, John, I need to work for you. I want to work for you. And, you know, and you guys are doing something great. I want to, I want to be a part of that greatness. And they came themselves, they willingly left whatever was more comfortable and they were like, I need to, I want to be a part of this. I want to be a part of something you're a part of, you know, because it aligns with what I want to do. You know, all I did was create a friendship and a relationship with them again, individually, right, with each person that they wanted to really, you know, just continue the relationship for. On that note, I want to ask you about, so if you were to curate a list of qualifiers to say this is an ideal and growth mindset worthy candidate that I seek for in my future team. Uh, what would be some of the bullet points on that list of qualifiers that you seek for uh, for your potential hirees? Hunger is the first one. I'll take I'll take a hungry person over someone who thinks they know everything every single time, and and like someone that no, actually knows more experience that has more experience. I'll take a hungry person ten out of ten times because you can always learn, but if you think you know and you already have too much knowledge, there's barriers. I have to overcome barriers. And those barriers are your knowledge, your current way of doing things. Versus if you don't know anything, but you're hungry as hell, you're a blank slate. I tell you to go run through that wall, you're gonna go run, you're gonna ask how hard. I tell you to jump, how high? You know? So it's like that's the I think of the, the difference and something that I really look for is that that hunger, that willingness to learn. Um, not feeling like they know everything, you know, and just being able to leave their pride at the front door and understand that, hey, all of this is to get better, you know, and again, you know, people, people that work for me now, it's just, they're all like that. I think, uh, I forgot who said this, maybe one of the very ubiquitously attributable public figures, but they talked about, uh, you shouldn't strive for money and status, you should strive for respect and uh, admiration. Because respect and admiration, you cannot purchase it. You cannot ask it. You cannot beg it. You earn it. People either respect you or they don't. So whoever came to hop the fence to uh, come to work for your current team, you didn't poach him. It's that they respected you. They knew what you're about. They knew the high road is possible if they come to you, right? But that's earned. You earned their respect. You didn't ask for it because respect literally cannot be asked. It, it is earned. And people don't respect people they don't want to. People only respect people who they truly want to respect. And so that's a very important qualifier there. I want to make a connection. And I think you appreciate this where we're going. Because one of the things that any business person with the high business acumen they have is they understand the art of networking. So during our qualitative process, I asked you what's one of your most impactful moments or stories. You said, oh, hi, I met you. And hi, how we stay connected, right? But jokes aside, I think this is a really important topic to revisit on the show because for the listeners, we connected through our sophomore year internship in the summer of 2015 or 2014, 2015, which was 
eight years ago. And somehow, some way, without social media, without Instagram, we stayed in touch throughout the last eight, nine years. And when I moved to LA with my partner, Becky, we were able to reconnect and right, our friendship has also blossomed since. And also to any listeners or any watchers, if you remember MSN messengers, all of the OG stuff, if you remember Ethernet cable, press that like, subscribe, because uh, that's, that's OG status for the millennials. Um, what do you, like, I think it's really important because networking isn't easy by any means, right? There's a lot of things you're ought to do, all these blueprints, every mastermind course out there of how to network with your mom one-on-one, uh, what can you tell and maybe even teach the listeners about the networking aspects? Like what are some of the really key elements that really puts a networker aside from someone else? Because salesmanship and networking, they're very, very intricately connected. Yeah, and sales has a very negative connotation to it uh, because of the sleazy salespeople that you would imagine and like used cars people, but that's not, that. I don't think that's sales. No one wants to be sold these days right? Everyone wants to work with someone they like at the end of the day. So I think in terms of that, that's also sales is networking, right? Sales is a part of everything, but networking, what really sets and what really will set you apart is just listening, asking questions and listening, kind of like what Ben was doing with the podcast, right? Because a lot of times people, a lot of people just want to be heard. And some people just want to have people that want to listen and genuinely listen and try to understand what they're saying and, you know, give responses. And I think that's the biggest way to network. It's not like, hey, this is me. This is what I've done. You know, how, what do you think? What do you think? Hey, what, how about you? Oh, I feel the same way. And what? it's not like that. It's not me, 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 me. It's you, 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 you respond, you, 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 you respond. And I think that's the biggest way you can network is ask the right Hey, what do you think about this? Oh, that's interesting. Why do you think that? Oh, that's interesting. What about this? Right? And it's just give me your point of view. And a lot of times if you are doing that, you listen to them, you talk to them, you just you respond, right? But not make it about you. Even if you do interject and throw things like, oh, this is what I think or I agree or I don't. I think it allows the other person to really feel like you have that rapport, right? Because rapport is very important, um, but it allows them to feel like, hey, I'm, we're on the same wavelength. So um, I think that's a, a big aspect. It's just listening, asking the right questions, because that's what true sales should be, is you listen to the problem and your role as the salesperson is to solve that problem, give them a solution to that problem, right? And allow them to feel like, oh, okay, this will actually solve my problem. And then at that point, you're not even really selling, you're just talking to them. It's very interesting, right? I think about this a lot and I've talked about this in the show before where humility is a prerequisite to curiosity. Even for me, like if I didn't think I could learn anything from you, Jonathan, I wouldn't have you on the show because I know I'd be asking a lot of questions. So for me to even ask you a question, I have to first internalize that, oh, Jonathan has something to teach me. Therefore, I'm going to ask him a question. And I think that curiosity and humility shows in day-to-day interactions. Like most people are really sharp, very sharp, right? They have this intuition. They could tell, oh, is he or she or they only here for the space for the networking? Are they actually interested in to learn more about my problem, the solutions they could provide? And I think a good concrete example, think about is social networking, like Facebook or Instagram. Like you don't go to someone else's post and say, hey, check me out. Watch me. I posted something similar. Like It's like, no, you like and comment about their content 
that's networking. It's not about you. So I think that's a good um, ground level to exemplify what Jonathan is talking here. Yeah, honestly, I don't even know how we stayed in touch because I don't even think we're Facebook friends, dude. <laughs> this is crazy. But yeah, I mean, you know, again, that was networking. Rekindling was networking too. I think that redefinition of salesmanship is really important because like once someone has a certain level of biases or what they think salesmanship is, they could just literally brush up everything else because they're like, nah, that doesn't fit into my belief. Like cancel culture, headliner culture. The reason why American politics and world is burning down is because people don't want to listen anymore. They have a very fixed idea of what anything is. And you apply that to X, Y, and Z, politics, relationship, strangers, first dates. And, but once you have that fixed idea, that's it. Nothing else, like feelings don't care about facts, right? That's the reason why. And it's really, really dangerous. And that's what everything this podcast is against for. I want to go down and take a hard pivot, right? Into the more spiritual and religious faith. Because we've talked about your business side of your life. We talked about your familyhood your parents sacrifice, your brotherhood with your little brother. And all those are really important pillars in your life. Another huge pillar is church and faith. But in a current modern America society where organized religion is a dying art, especially Christianity, it's not a popular religion. You're like, hey, I'm a Christian. Like people are like, well, fuck you, you're Christian. You probably hate all these things, right? So why has faith and church always been an important pillar throughout your upbringing because a lot of people lose faith as they get older. And I spoke with James Lee, the college pastor and a philosopher at our church, and we talked about a lot of people fall out of faith, air quote, is because their childhood faith never got converted into adulthood faith. A lot of people's childhood faith never gets tested in life or by life, so it doesn't really deepen. And of course, like, it's like seasons of life. Your faith, you drift away some days, you get deep in some days, but for you, it's pretty consistent throughout. Of course, you have your low seasons as well because you're human. But tell us about why has church and faith always been such a rock important uh, pillar throughout your upbringing and part of who Jonathan Yu is? I think a big part of it is twofold. My grandma was the first Christian in our family. He's, she's the one that kind of on my dad's side, my dad's mother, she will put everything on God. She, you know, there's something that happens, you know, she'll pray about it. If there's something that is going on that she needs to push on, she'll pray about it. Someone's sick, she'll pray about it. Like, you know, she's the one person that tells me like, look, you got to pray. You got to talk to God. You got to make sure you communicate with him. And it served her very well um, over the years. She set up a few churches, you know, in the early days. You know, she was a very successful businesswoman. You know, in in sense, she was like one of the first female graduates of um, a trade school in Korea, which is extreme, like back in the day, going to college and trade school as a, as a Korean, as a woman was like, not really that accepted, but she was like the first graduating class of like Korean woman that graduated from like trade school. She's, she's so talented sewing and stuff. But for me, it's just, you know, obviously my, my, my mind's a little different. Um, but I think the way that I really try to do that is to, to have the experiences that I'm having to gain that quote unquote success that I'm getting and then kind of lure people in and allow people to see that you can be successful and a Christian at the same time, right? You don't have to trade and sacrifice success just because you're a Christian. It doesn't have to be like that. And I think that really stuck with the both of us and 
you know, kind of allowed me to maintain my faith. And every time it's just, hey, I need to be someone that's, you know, used by God. How is he using me today? Right. How is he going to use me? And in a lot of senses, what's kept me grounded is, you know, coming up to church every single week on Sunday, you know, showing up. And, um, you know, what I used to do back in college, which is crazy thinking about it now is, dude, I, I mean, I went to UCSD. And I used to drive up every single weekend to LA to go to church on Sunday and teach, you know, junior high kids, elementary school kids, and then drive all the way back down, you know, on the same day. And it's, I was like, that's nuts, dude. From San Diego to LA is like 120 miles one way. So I did 240 miles every single weekend, literally week in, week out to go to church and to serve at church, volunteer at church and be part of the community. Um, that was insane. That was insane. And on top of that, like I was a very unconventional church goer at the time. I, you know, there was a lot of people that were like, Oh dude, like Ju is my nickname. Ju, like he's, you know, he's a, he's in the frat. Like, ah, he's about the life of the party. Like all that, like you shouldn't do that as a member of church. But you know, I think actions speak louder than words. And you know, bro, I showed up. Where were you? You know, I used to be the president of a fraternity, but I showed up. I showed up to church. I served faithfully, you know? So I think that kind of uh, kept me grounded. I think it was the one thing that kept me grounded week in, week out of like, hey, I need to serve. I need to serve. I feel like that's kept me there, kept me consistent. But other than that, I mean, dude, I, I don't know how I did it. I don't know what it is now. And I tell my kids this, and I've told my kids this in the past, by my kids, I mean my small group kids, my Sunday school kids. <laughs> not my actual children. I told them like, look, honestly, if it was me, if it was just me doing this, I would not. I am a vessel for God and to show his love to you guys, which is why I have the energy to drive up every single weekend, even though I do not want to, even though it's tiring, even though I could be spending that time going out and playing and doing all these other things. I sacrifice all that and I don't, I'm not even mad about it. I'm not even mad about it at all. Actually, I'm glad to do it. The church never paid me to drive, you know, like, geez. And I always joke about it with, um, even to this day with uh, our, our uh, pastor, with our junior high pastor. I'm like, because, you know, we do a lot of events and, you know, we have to drive kids around. So I'm like, yeah, I, I you know, running a multi-million dollar business during the day. And then when I go back, when I go to church, I'm a freaking Uber driver. <laughs> I'm an unpaid Uber driver. For and I was free. like, dude, for free. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's what I want to be. I want to be a servant, you know? So, and I think servants, being a servant leader is very important. And I think that's what kind of, um, again, going back to the leadership thing also helped me set, set apart is just being a, a serving leader, not a, a selfish leader. I feel like that could be the clickbait thumbnail for this episode is a figure business owner becomes a people unpaid Uber driver on the weekends. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true though, right? Like otherwise you wouldn't have been able to sustain that six, seven years that you drove every single weekend, even when you worked in a San Diego. That's like five hours, six hours. It was nine years because I did it from freshman year all the way through when I moved back to LA. That was like nine years. It was nuts, dude. Yeah, it's like six hours Insane. of commute every weekend. Ooh, yeah, nuts. That's, that's crazy. But that's why yeah. God is making your life fruitful, right? Well, I mean, yeah, I hope so. It's not really mine. You know, I think it's, not lent, but it's like, it's just allowed, you know, for me to enjoy being able to provide for people and my family. And I think that's something that I want to, 
you know, I can't take for granted. And if it's like the story of Job, am I going to worship him or, or curse him if everything's taken away? I truly think it's not mine. It's not 100% mine in the first place. So it's like, you know, we'll see if it ever happens. You know, I can't, I say it now and I'm putting it on camera. I can't really be mad. You know, it's just, I can't really be mad. If what was given to me was given to me. It's not yours. It's on record. So I'll Venmo request $10,000 after this. Since it's not yours, it's, it's God's anyway. It's not yours. So just accept that request, okay? Yeah, for sure, for sure, for sure, for sure, for sure. Unfriended, um, never coming on the show again. Never heard. <laughs> yeah. um, so in terms of doing, being the vessel for God, uh, what is your current life's mission statement? So that you can truly be the person, the vehicle that God is proud of. Dude, honestly, these days, and I'm, you know, and this goes to show and, and add on to the fact that I'm not perfect is I've kind of lost that recently just because I've been so busy in my own life. Obviously, as you know, you know, we expanded to San Diego. Um, you know, we we're doing all this PR stuff, you're traveling back and forth from different places and so much is going on. You know, I know all the hard work that got to us to get to this point. So I know that this point is where I have to really focus and just, I really can't think of anything else. And I think that that's kind of showing me that, Hey, I'm not, I'm not perfect. I'm not there. You know, so my life's mission statement right now, to be honest, is it's, it's a little skewed. I don't, I don't, I'm kind of running without one as it stands today, just because I've been so selfish with my time. I'm just blindfolded and freaking just sprinting right now. So maybe next time I'll have a, a better answer for you on that one. But as of right now, it's uh it's a big fat, not sure. I mean, I appreciate the honest answer because a lot of, I mean, these questions are unscripted. It's off the dome. So I appreciate your vulnerability, your honesty, and to really show the listeners that, oh, from the outside world, you are the uh, co-founder, co-business owner of a A-figure multi-dollar million dollar business but your life isn't all peachy like there's areas of imbalance in your life or as i say all the time like don't forget about your mental health and i think that's what life is and god never judges us for drifting away at times because i think like c.s lewis's quote like god uses pain as megaphone and i think it's through these moments of lowness that god has the greatest opportunity to instill faith or deepen our faith right like the quote of wounds is where light enters that's what i really really believe so let's ride the train of God a little bit longer because uh, I really want to uphold our faith. And at least when I look back in my life, I see a lot of God's footprints or God moments, as I call it. So whether you call it God moments or synchronistic moments, whatever you want. And of course, we're using God in our context. For some listeners, it could be a universe, the source, etc. whatever uh, suits their needs. You have very, very strong and active blind faith, as you alluded to earlier. But a lot of times, some parts of faith is predicated on some evidence, right? And evidence to our context, to people that are like, oh, that's just coincidence. We view it as evidence. So for you, does any very large, really important God moments uh, you can think about now and want to share that throughout your life, maybe recently during some particular uh, low seasons of life? I think through my life, it, the God moments have just been kind of, family being there. I, I mean, you know me, I, I value and you're the same way. Value of family is like the most important thing for me. I would do anything for my family. I think just growing up and seeing my dad literally put and that, you know, it's kind of a series of events, but like my dad and my mom put everything they had 
into making sure our family was a family. I think that has been kind of, a, if anything, a God moment because I experienced through his labor, through her labor, my parents' labor, who else would do that for you? Even some parents, right? There's, there's a lot of like bad parents out there that sometimes they just like, they just give up, right? And it's so sad to see them do that. But you have to truly love your family and want something better for your family in order for them to work so hard to become, you know, kind of the the family that they want to create, right? And I think that was kind of a huge, like, God moments, plural, huge God moments that really led to um, me looking back, like, now I'm like, shoot, like, if God was not giving, if God did not give them the energy, the ability, the urgency, all of that, if, the, if, if that was never instilled on them, then there is no way, no way that I would be anywhere close to where I am right now. I think that's kind of a, a huge series of moments. When I was feeling the most down at the lowest points, it's, I think it's just my little brother just giving me glimpses of like encouragement. And again, I'm a, tr- I'm a really strong believer that God works through people. You know, I, that's, that's what I truly believe. We are extensions, right? Because physically these days, how many people are experiencing God, like walking down the street, like, oh, I just got zapped by the light. You know, like, it's not like that anymore. You know, there's the, it's not like the Old Testament. So, you know, God really, I really truly believe God works through people. And when God is working through people, I think a lot of times it comes in the form of my siblings. You know, my brother, wow, we've been through a lot. Like we had been through a lot together because we grew up in the same family, same household. You know, a lot of our experiences were shared and just kind of being different, but also being like um, having kind of an unconditional like puppy-like love. I would like beat my brother up sometimes. I'd do all that. And then he'd come back showing unconditional love. Be like, yo, you know, like this, young, you're great here. You're great that, you know, don't like look down on yourself, whatever. Um, so I feel like that kind of was again, series of God moments that would throughout my life, uh, I saw his fingerprint in, you know, God really working through my brother to really be like, Hey, you know, don't put yourself down, you know, let me encourage you. I think that really helped. And then also I think more recently, um, an actual moment is just meeting my partners to start convoy. That was really, uh, I think, a pivotal moment for me because it was it was what I had been working so hard for previously, right? And I was ask, I was like asking God, like, dude, when can I come back to LA? God answered my prayer after freaking ten years in San Diego, like, hey, dude, here's the opportunity now. You ready to take it? You know, it's one of those moments. It's like, heck yeah, I'm ready to take it. You know, I put I put everything I had into the business when I first started. You know, and it was everything that I had might have been incremental to everybody else. But for me at that moment, it was every single dollar that I had. I put it in. I risked it all. I think that like that opportunity, meeting my partners, having such great partners to help like start and grow the business with. I think that really helped. You know, that was really a God moment, too. Yeah. I want to revisit and zoom in a couple of things from that story. Uh, can you share the story you shared with me offline maybe last year about you intentionally didn't want to come back to LA until you've fully shown your parents that you're independent and you can take care of yourself? Because it's the trust, right? Like 
A lot of kids don't understand this. Once you get to a certain age, you understand that you have to earn your parents' respect, not as their kids and offspring, but as an independent human being who has his or her own things, own vision, etc. Uh, because I sense that thread from just what you just said, right? It's like, when God, when can I come back to LA? And God's like, poof, here is a gateway to come back. Can you walk us through that? The reason why I stayed in San Diego when I took that job, I obviously there's a lot more opportunity in LA, me being from LA. But the reason I stayed in San Diego after college was because I made a commitment to myself because I knew my parents weren't like they weren't well off. I have two other siblings. They got to take care of my two other siblings. You know, they got to pay for their stuff. So I was like, shoot, I can't go home because if I go home back to LA, then my parents are going to feel like they have to take care of me. It'd be like an obligation thing, right? Even though they don't have enough already, they would have to sacrifice even more to provide for me. So I was like, screw that. I'm going to make it so that I am, I feel like I'm ready to come back. I feel like I come back only when I feel like I get to a point where they don't have to take care of me. And I wanted to make it a point, like a challenge to myself, like, and there was kind of a sacrifice, I guess, for me, for my other siblings too, because I wanted them to get more, right, while I am, you know, kind of making my way. It was that decision that kind of was like, I, I can't come back until I feel like, and they feel like, they, they need to feel that and respect me to a point where they feel like they don't need to like provide for me because I'm doing so well. You know, parents... Our parents love us so much where it's like, even if they have no clothes, they will take off what little they have to give to you. And I was like, dude, I can't do that. I can't do that to them. You know, it was a, it was a tough time, dude. I, uh, I, ooh, like months I would eat like eggs, you know, eggs, carton of eggs, buy two cartons of eggs, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, eggs, boiled eggs, just, you know, kind of like struggle my way through because I really didn't want them to feel like they had to provide for me. And the only way that I could do that is physically separate myself from them. So I think that kind of drove me into driving harder into being like, I need to get to a point where I can come back home because LA is home. I, I need to be able to come back home without them feeling like, oh, I'm concerned about if he's, you know, has enough money to eat. I'm concerned if he has enough money to pay rent. I'm concerned if he has enough money to play or do whatever, you know, because they're always going to put my needs before them. I didn't want that. I wanted to be the one to be like, here, you know, go have fun. Or here, here's something nice for you. You know, that's what I wanted. Actually, I just, this just hit me now that I think one of your superpower is your ability to deal with the unknown, your ability to deal with the uncertainties. Uh, do you have any thoughts there? Because whether it's your initial decision to take that $12.50 job, which is, once again, I don't know what you were thinking, but that's extremely ballsy of you. I don't even know if it was calculated risk by any means, but that included how do you deal with the unknowns or how do you deal with uncertainty? To be honest, I don't think I calculate risk as much as I should. So uh, I kind of just have gone by gut feeling, just pure making it happen. Even if it's not supposed to happen, I will force it into existence. And I know that I'm like that. So you know, not being afraid to take risk, that aspect of it is literally just from being afraid to lose, being afraid to have that risk, where it's like, no, I'm just going to go freaking 110%, doesn't, no breaks, just go, you know? And after you make that decision to go, you have to go, you know? And honestly, if you, for any like avenue, and you know this, 
If you push hard enough to break through, at a certain point, you will break through. It's just how it works. You can only fail so many times before it hits. Thankfully for me, it just kind of like, I just kind of got that in the beginning. And then it, because of that first time where I took that job that was, I knew nothing about, and that was such low pay, because I took that job and I bet on myself, when I was starting Convoy again, it was a, another bet on myself. I was like, it's a no brainer. You know, it's everything that I have, but it's a no brainer to once again, bet wholeheartedly on myself. And, you know, because I know that I'm not alone on this walk, one, and two, because I've done it before. I know I could do it again. And it's, it just hap- it's the same industry, same work, you know, same everything. What's changing? But now I have more experience. So no brainer. Boom. Done. Very counterintuitive, but this is a really important topic though, because especially for men nowadays, right? With Gen Z or whatever, self-trust is so rare and it's really hard to trust in yourself. I think part of the things you didn't say that I sense is you've seen evidence, you've seen uh, data points, you've seen patterns where in your life, when you look back, you're like, oh, I don't know what I'm going into, but based on this data points that I have in my life that, oh, I could trust not the business, not the industry, not my partners even, but I could trust myself as Jonathan you, because I know how I will show up when a barrier or challenges arises. And I sense that from you. Um, do you have any maybe advice or recommendations for maybe younger listeners who struggle with self-trust, who struggle and maybe they don't even have a village to help ground them? Like you have supportive parents, they, they will go to the end of the world for you. You had some friends around. Maybe for someone who doesn't have any of that and they just really struggle with, man, I would love to be like Jonathan and trust in myself, but they struggle. Anything comes to your your mind? I think find what you're passionate about. If you find what you're passionate about, I think your passion will drive you further than even self-trust. Because honestly, I don't like it's not self-trust for me. It's just my passion, right? So it's it's portrayed as self-trust, but it's not self-trust. It's pure passion and pure drive. So I think if you find that passion or drive for something, then that will portray itself as self-trust, just like it did for me. You know, and that's a very weird answer to give, I know, because how does, you know, drive and, you know, all that turn into self-trust? But it's at the end of the day, it's people define for you and it's always going to be different than what you feel yourself inside. So it's whatever gets in your way. And the, I feel like one of the reasons why Benoit has me on is because I'm, I'm very different than a lot of other people. I'm not the conventional method. I'm very different than a lot of people that he knows in his professional field um, that even I know. I know I'm different. But I feel like these things have hopefully you know, you get encouragement from the fact that from hearing me, even me saying like, I don't, it's not self-trust. It's my, it's just pure passion and drive that shows people like it makes them feel like it's self-trust when it's not self-trust and it's just pure passion and drive. And you have to know with that pure passion and drive, you have to know what you're talking about and what you're passionate about, like the industry or whatever you're doing to get to that point where others feel like it's like, oh, should he really trust himself? Because that comes from other people not from myself. It's defined. Same thing with success. Like other people will define you as successful, even if you personally do not feel like you're successful, right? It's, it's, it's always portrayal. So 
I think, you know, it doesn't matter what other people say at the end of the day or make you feel like, but it, I feel like it really is that passion and that drive that'll push you to get to the point where you are so passionate and you are, you're so driven about something that it's not the trust that does it. It's like, you know, that your passion and drive will carry it through and then it'll portray itself as self-trust, even if it's not self-trust. It's almost like your passion is so loud that it tunes out and mutes out all the other chatters. Correct. And I sense that in you as well. Yeah, that's a great answer. And it's not just that you are very different. I, there's a lot of things about you I just don't understand. <laughs> Even as a trained clinician, I just like, how can you be reflective if you don't have any reflective practices? You're so mindful as a human, but you're on your phone all the time. You're reacting to all these things. You're a unicorn in your own right. But one of the things I do appreciate, you're very real. Like you are very real. Um, you're very successful in the way I define success because I think you do what you love with integrity. And integrity is a dying art. It's so rare, especially in a world of fake personas where a lot of people outsource their thinking to crowds or public figures on a pedestal. They don't really think for themselves, but you don't do that. You think for yourself, you do what you want and you try it out. And through God's grace, because it's not, God is also part of the equation, right? that you can truly do what you do. And God does deliver through people, as you said, throughout. We're definitely coming to the end of the episode. And so I want to hit you with the discover more question. The question is twofold. A, after this pretty vast and very refreshingly unique conversation with you, Jonathan, what's an area in your life, whether it's spiritual life, personal life, professional life, what is something you want to discover more about after this interview ends? And the second fold is, what is an area in our listeners' lives you want to encourage or even challenge to discover more about? In terms of like, Benoit, you said earlier, like, I am a very uh, reflective person without being, without having any practices of reflection. I think I would be able to find more reflection even further if I actually took the time to practice reflection. So that's something I do want to discover more about just personally, because I feel like it would help me kind of sort things out right in my own mind and that's also a little bit of a nuance because it's not a practice that is the same for everybody it's a very different practice for everybody it might seem like the same but it's very different right so little nuance there for your viewers slash listeners though uh what i do want to encourage and challenge is to really find that passion you know it can be something that's like even as old as you know mortgages because mortgages are so old it's what it is it's an old thing however you know if your passion like for me that that passion drove me to like oh loans are what i love you know um and man like real estate i love it like we kind of talked about it a little earlier where i was like i feel like i'm not even like grinding that's how i find balance i challenge everyone to kind of have that same thing because it's so much easier to go wake up every single day feeling like I love waking up. Every day is a Friday rather than like, oh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Like every day is a Friday for me. We are all capable of doing so much more than we think. Like I keep saying myself and I always tell my mom, like, bro, I feel like I'm just getting started. Like I know that because I'm like, I know that I can do so much more. You know, but in order to get there, I need, a, I need to grow, right? So it's kind of like, hey, find that passion, find what drives you and really, truly find it. 
So you feel like every day is a, a Friday. It's not just my lack of sleep, Benoit, that you know my all my weeks and months blend together. But it's also because every day feels like I'm not like dreading any day. I don't dread waking up any day. I'm so excited to wake up the next day. I'm so excited to you know to do my work because it's a passion. Yeah, Rebecca Blatt said it best. Thank God it's Friday. But uh, it's even better if everything's a Friday, right? Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, and obviously that, that is cliche, but it's almost counterintuitive. But I saw this video on YouTube recently about how to improve your work ethics. I, that's the dumbest video I've seen in my life because you just work. That's the only <laughs> way to improve work ethics. <laughs> At the same time, people have different threshold of genetics, right? People have, someone have higher threshold for adrenaline or risk. Some people have higher adrenaline for discipline and work that that's true it's on a genetical level but if you're doing what jonathan is saying it's a little bit counterintuitive but if you find a passion area that you love it so much even if you have poor work ethics or maybe less advantageous genetics quote unquote that passion itself will become the driver and it will create momentum it's very counterintuitive but it makes a lot of sense if you really think about it it is dude. like think about it this way and this is just an actual example is like Bro, when I first started in loans, I was a 21-year-old, fresh out of college, uh, Asian, you know? And the only reason why I picked phone sales versus like in-person sales is because if they saw me in person, no one would trust me, you know? So I had to deliver that trust in a way where it was over the phone because then, they, you know, I paint the picture of who I am in their minds. But there's not a lot of Asians in this industry. And again, like I said before, this industry is very old. I was like, dude, I am, I love this, right? So I overcame being Asian and being young, right? Instead of old to allow, to drive, you know, clients respect and understanding and everything in my doors to be where I'm at today, you know? So it's, it's kind of trust. It'll, it'll like, it'll push you so far. Like, and I say that with such passion and fervor because I truly believe like it'll push you so much further than you ever thought you could imagine if you understand like what you actually love. Yeah. And it's this uh, in unexplainable feeling. You can't almost articulate it, but I know we talk about this a lot offline. Like we, every single day, like on a metacognitive level, we can feel us leveling up whether it's with business, whether our knowledge or skill sets or experiences, exposure. And that's a cool fucking feeling. Like I literally feel myself leveling up every single time, whether I talk to you or doing my work. And I know you tell me all the time, dude, I could feel I'm leveling up. And that's an awesome feeling. And that is self-creative fuel. That's why momentum creates momentum, period. But to create the first momentum, you got to do something about it. And being passionate helps a lot, period. Because a lot of people talk about like passion to profit. And this episode is going to release tomorrow. He talks about he's a YouTuber, influencer, arborist, home gardener, expert. And he's like, well, to turn passion to profit, you need passion. Without passion, there's no profit, period. So uh, I think that's very important. Um, awesome, man. This was, uh, I want to be respectful of your time. So this has been an awesome, awesome. I really, I learned a lot about you. I appreciate you being vulnerable on the screen. You almost brought a tears into my eyes, but I had to hold my ground so we can keep this uh, meaningful conversation going. Let me roll out the red carpet for you, Jonathan. Where could people connect with you? I know you target luxury real estate market, but where could people check out what you do? Maybe feel inspired by you, maybe even apply to your company as your future team members. Uh, where could they connect? 
you know, a lot of our focus is luxury and investment real estate, but I'm, I do everything loan wise. So um, feel free if you ever have any questions, if anything, just let me know you're from Discover More. You can feel free to uh, go to my website, um, convoyhomeloans.com, and you can go into the leadership tab and in there you'll see a little picture of me and it has my you know phone number and email there. So you can always feel free to just reach out. And you know, if you have any questions or anything like, hey, I'm interested in X, Y, and Z, can what do you think? And I'm more than happy to be an open book to you and your your listener. And yeah, to the listeners, the uh, the most recent analytics shows that 65% of the viewers unsubscribed. So please click that subscribe button so I can keep doing this for free without monetizing any of the listeners. So it's a true free value proposition without any hidden strings attached. If you share this episode with your friends who want to learn more about real estate, how faith or any religious practice could help ground you, or if you want to share this on an audio platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, if you found any value in this, don't share if you thought this was useless, but if you thought this was helpful any means, please share this with a listener. It really helps the podcast to grow and for me to keep doing this in perpetuity. As always, I thank you for joining on this train of Discover More with us. And Jonathan, please check him out. He's an amazing person. He has so much to offer than this limited two hours that we have for this conversation. And as always, we'll see you again next time. Thank you.